0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 111, Poitiers. This week, and for those of you who like battles and dates and all that sort of thing, we have a real treat, a campaign of Poitiers. For those of you who do not like that sort of thing, then this week it's really going to suck, because today is all about war. On the website, gentle listener, we have a feast of animation. Due to the labours of my brother and Andy, we now have a new widget that allows a slideshow, which you can move forward at your own pace. How cool is that? On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being rubbish and 10 being massively super cool. There are not one, but two slideshows. One of the campaign and the other of the battle itself. And I slobber with gratitude for Andy and Jonathan's work. So, in the south-west of France, 1356 started as 1355 had ended. English raids into French territory to which either there was no response or a response that came far too late. Lords in the area were violent, touchy and fickle. Seeing French impotence, many brought their allegiance to the Black Prince, brought their castles and land and became violent, touchy and fickle on the English side. Poor old John was suffering. Through the back end of 1355 he was forced to make concession after concession to get himself any tax revenue at all, to pay an army for the following year. All around him was the muttering of men who saw the liberties the English were taking with his kingdom. Charles of Navarre, though formally reconciled, was a constant source of opposition, even to the point of planning a coup with the royal heir, the Dauphin. John rumbled a first plan, only to find another had been hatched, and so he decided enough was enough, and that he should act. In April 1356, then, the Dauphin was at Rouen, at the head of a banquet for Charles of Navarre and 30 prominent noblemen of Normandy. In the middle of the meal, King John entered by a side door unannounced. He was wearing a battle helmet and full armour under his clothes, and was followed by his brother, the Duke of Orléans, his son, the Count of Anjou, and Marshal Oudrem. As they moved to the centre of the hall, the Marshal drew his sword and shouted, ''Anyone who moves shall die,'' provoking an outburst of stillness. John marched, or clanked over to the main table, and, ignoring the Dauphin's protests, grabbed Navarre by the throat and snarled, ''Foul traitor, you deserve to die!'' At this point, many guests suddenly discovered they had important appointments elsewhere and made a dash for the door, but most were held. And then later that day, four noblemen were put into two carts and taken out to a large field outside the city called Champ du pardon No executioner could be found, but there was a murderer waiting for trial in Rouen, so this chap inexpertly hacked off the heads of the four noblemen. Their bodies were hung from chains and the heads impaled on lances as a reminder to those who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Charles of Navarre himself, being a member of the royal family, was lobbed into prison, where he was to stay for 18 months. Charles's brother Philip declared his defiance of the king and hold up in Cherbourg at the top of the Cotentin Peninsula in Normandy and with a number of his castles holding out against the king throughout Normandy. And so England once again had an open door into France. John knew full well that war with the English was on the way, and once again set about raising an army. Now the way this happened was jolly traditional. There had been no move to contract companies as there had been in England. In France, the army was often composed of thousands of knights and squires who tipped up at the muster with a couple of horses and a page, and maybe the odd archer or two. Largely, this is because there was no privatisation of war in France, since they were fighting on their own territory, so there's no profit motive to put a private company together, which is going to pay for itself with loot and all the rest of it. There's no reason to doubt that the French were anything other than fully competent at war, but inevitably it meant that there was less cohesion in the French army than in the English. In the English army, groups of men fought together who were used to fighting and living together. The French had to get to know each other and how to work together from scratch every campaign. Meanwhile, the way of fighting and the armour people used has changed. We've talked ad nauseum about the lesser importance now of the cavalry charge, something to which the French were at last beginning to adapt. But many of these changes meant that in the medieval army it was, in fact, much more difficult now to know what class of person you were speaking to. The horse had always been a big differentiator socially. You could tell a bloke was a knight because he had a big destrier designed for the cavalry charge. Well, there were a few of those still around, but far less of them. And now everyone had horses, including the archers which added enormously to the mobility of the medieval army, but didn't tell you who was who. Also, armour was less of a differentiator than it had used to be. Yes, there were the very grand people, who now used all-over plate armour, like you see in the pictures, all shiny and bright, buffed up every night by hard-working pages. Once upon a time, the English were seen as very backwards and mocked by the French with their male or plate mail combo armour. But by 1356, the English had caught up. Nonetheless, many of the lesser lords and other ranks preferred, or could only afford, much more simple stuff. So even a knight might be wearing boiled leather armour, for example. OK, so the main event of today's episode is, of course, the campaign and the Battle of Poitiers. But before the main course, there is the appetiser and this came in the form of the Duke of Lancaster with his army of about 2,400 men, drawn from England, Philip of Navarre and Robert Knowles, who joined them from Brittany. Over the next two months, Lancaster essentially made a monkey out of John. All his army was mounted, whereas John had a large mass of slow-moving infantry. Lancaster moved fast, 30 miles a day. The amount he actually achieved was limited but he took three castles and stuck three garrisons in the middle of the French territory to cause trouble before he legged it back to the Contentin. One of the things he'd achieved was to drive off the French forces besieging the castle of Bretoy, held for Charles of Navarre. Those of you with super impressive memories may remember us talking of Bretoy many moons ago. It was an old fortress built by Billy the conk and in its day a model of the modern military architecture. But now it was 200 years old. It was the only rebel garrison in the north of Normandy, but really not greatly relevant. But John made another of his dodgy strategic decisions and decided that this was where he'd make his stand and he'd reduce the castle, come what may, at whatever price. Meanwhile in Bordeaux, the Black Prince was ready. He'd been reinforced with a fresh draft of men from Blighty. John's local boss Armagnac was also ready, but unfortunately he was ready for last year's plan, not for this year's. He'd prepared for another chevroise into the Long Dock, or maybe the Rhone Valley. But instead, the Black Prince was heading north. He stopped off at La Réole to organise the defence of Gascony in his absence, and then with a force of about 6,000 men, all mounted, he set off north. From this point, gentle listeners, hie thee to the website and verily see the slideshow of the march. The plan was probably to cross the Loire Valley near Orléans on the way north towards Paris and for King Edward to cross the channel and launch a third expedition in the north of France, moving south to meet the Black Prince and then together father and son, arm in arm, would march on Paris. In the early days of the march, the English and Gascons kept it together, pretty much, moving forward in one colourful column of pennants and painted carts. This was because the Black Prince was in an area close enough to traditional Aquitaine for him to want to avoid annoying the natives too much. But by the 14th of August, he had crossed the River Vienne and now felt that he was in hostile territory and so off came the gloves. The Black Prince unfurled his banner, the army split into columns to advance on a wide front and they began to burn. Abbeys and towns were attacked and viciously looted as they moved north heading towards the ancient city of Bourges. Back in England, by the 26th of August it had become clear to King Edward that he wasn't going to be able to get through the screen of Genoese galleys that guarded the channel for John. And so it was decided that it would be Lancaster, already over the channel in Normandy, who would move south to meet the Black Prince. And near the end of August, Lancaster sent a letter saying to the Prince he'd meet him near Tours on the Loire. So where was John while all this was happening? Well, he was stubbornly besieging the castle of Breteuil in the same way that he'd besieged Aiguillon before Cressy. In the words of David Byrne, he was on a road to nowhere and he wasn't going to get inside. But he knew full well that he had to close the Bretois thing down and stop the Black Prince marching through the heart of France without challenge. So essentially, in desperation, he just bought the garrison off. He offered them an enormous sum of money, gave them free passage to Philip of Navarre, and off they went, smiling happily. John moved to Chartres to reconstitute his army. His first instruction was to order the Count of Poitiers to hold the line of the Loire against the Black Prince, reinforcing once again just what an obstacle rivers were in days medieval. His second instruction was to disband the larger part of his army. He did what? Now, you will not be surprised to know that John received something of an ear-bashing from the chroniclers for this particular instruction, which, true enough, does seem slightly contrary. You need an army, so you go and disband one. But in point of fact, it was the urban infantry that John discarded. They were just no good to him on this campaign. He had to match the Black Prince's mobility, as Lancaster had just showed him. At this point, incidentally, William Douglas turned up with his 200 men from Scotland, ready to join anyone who was sticking it to the English. Meanwhile, the flying columns of the Black Prince were wasting the countryside closer and closer to the Loire Valley. The capital de bouche sacked the town of Vierzon. Chandos and Audley made a dash for the Loire, but couldn't find a crossing that was open. John was still struggling. He was still at Chartres. Since he was struggling to get things together, two of his captains decided to delay the Black Prince. They took a small but significant force to the town of Romorantin. As it happens, they made this decision too late to mount an effective defence, but they did hold the Black Prince up for five days. Despite this, on the 7th of September, the Black Prince was on the Loire outside the town of Tours. He'd arrived ready for his rendezvous, but where was Lancaster? Clearly he was still somewhere to the north of the river. So how could the Black Prince cross the Loire to meet him? Without Lancaster's men, he would be heavily outnumbered in an encounter with John. But Tour itself was comprehensively prepared. The Marshal Clermont and the King's son the Count d'Anjou were inside with a major force. The Black Prince did try one assault, but it got nowhere and was easily driven off. Behind him to the east, John finally had his army together and had crossed the Loire up Loire, and marched ten miles down toward the town of Amboise, a mere ten miles east of the Black Prince's position. The Black Prince was now in danger of being trapped between Clermont in tour and John, and he withdrew southwards, crossing two rivers and occupying the fortress of Montbazon, giving him something of a margin of safety. At this point, the diplomacy started. As ever, it was the Pope and his delegates who were supposed to be the honest brokers, and the honest broker they hit on to calm everything down was one Cardinal Talleyrand. Talleyrand was not your ascetic, austere and deeply religious type of cardinal, if such a thing existed by this time anyway. Not only was he French, which in the circumstances was unfortunate, but he was one of the great ecclesiastical pluralists of his day, that is to say, he had been given not one, but a number of livings to maintain his extravagant lifestyle, and many of those were in England. In fact, the English Parliament had even identified him as a public enemy with the words that Talleyrand was, the king's greatest enemy in the papal curia and the one that does more there than any man to obstruct his enterprises. It was a choice of man, therefore, indicating that the French Pope still wasn't taking the English threat seriously, was still unable to accept that anyone could, or should, challenge the might and glory of France. Talleyrand's colleagues had already visited King Edward in Westminster and been sent away with a flea in their ears. Now at Montbazon, Talleyrand tried with the Black Prince, and the Black Prince wouldn't give him the time of day. True to say the Black Prince was in something of a jam. Try as he might, he couldn't find Lancaster. And meanwhile, the French forces arrayed against him were growing as different groups crossed the Loire, some of them seemingly heading to rendezvous at Poitiers, which lay to the south. Others were a more immediate threat. The Dauphin entered Tours with a thousand men-at-arms from Normandy, for example. Meanwhile, John was heading from Amboise to Poitiers, on a route that would bring him into direct conflict at frankly hideous odds. The armies were now within spitting distance of each other. The prince retreated from the village of La Haye on the morning of the 13th of September and John arrived in the same village on the very same evening. So the prince withdrew further to chateau and waited there for three days hoping against hope for news of Lancaster. There was then good and bad news for the prince. The good news was that Lancaster had appeared and was not far away, just south of Angers. The bad news was that he was on the wrong side of the river. And then came further news of the rubbish variety. John had sold the Black Prince a dummy. He had marched straight south, bypassing the Black Prince and was now at a village called Chauvigny, due east from Poitiers where even more troops waited for him. The prince was now trapped, blocked from Gascony by John and from Lancaster by the River Loire. And now John had more men waiting for him in Poitiers. So the moment of truth had arrived, le crunch, D-Day, the tough going where the tough get going. And it transpires that the black prince was just the man for the job, confident in his ability and the men around him, buoyed by the success of ten years of English military dominance. And so far from running away, the prince's plan was to have a hack at John before he could get from Chauvigny to Poitiers. Though to be honest, I'm not sure he had any choice. He really had nowhere to run to. It could well be that despite his poor military reputation, John had actually pulled a pretty neat manoeuvre. And so on the morning of the 17th of September, the Black Prince turned south and trudged through the forest towards the chauvigny Poitiers road. But when they arrived, they found they were too late. John's army had already passed and was now safely in Poitiers, or pretty much anyway. The rearguard hadn't quite got in, and the prince's men were able to attack and give them a good mauling before having to withdraw for the night. That evening, the black prince camped southeast of Poitiers in the forest of Noailles On the positive side, If they now wanted to run, they would have a chance. It would be challenging to stay in front of John, what with all their carts full of loot and all, but they could run. And the English were now desperately short of provisions and poorly equipped for a game of cat and mouse. They really needed time to be able to forage. But while running for home might seem attractive, the Black Prince hadn't come this far to run away. And if you think about it, how would it have looked if he had? He'd done a bit of plundering, but nothing on the scale of the previous year. He'd failed to hook up with Lancaster, failed to mount any real credible threat to John's safety. No, if he was going to get anything out of this campaign, he had to take the fight to John. So on the morning of the 18th of September, he moved north out of the forest towards Poitiers and the enemy. John, meanwhile, had the same troubles that had beset Philip before Cressy. The English had tweaked his nipples, or the collected French nipples, once too often for him to back out now. The great Chevorce, Lancaster's wandering around Normandy, the defeats in Brittany. And so when the Black Prince came to the edge of the forest, he found John and his army drawn up in the plains south of Poitiers waiting for him. It's clear that the Black Prince was heavily outnumbered. The lowest estimate of John's numbers were 11,000, which, for equity's sake, I have used. The Black Prince can't have had more than 6,000, and quite probably considerably less, given wastage along the way, but many estimates make John's army north of 20,000 and even 30,000 men. Looking at the numbers and the poor odds against him, the Prince set about establishing himself in as best a position as possible. And I am now going to suggest that you high to the second animated slideshow on the website, although you might want to leave it until after you've listened to the podcast. After all, we don't want any plot spoilers now, do we? The Prince created a pretty strong defensive position. The dense forest of Noailles was behind them, protecting their rear. On the left was the Moisson, a stream surrounded by a marsh. And in front of them, at the top of a small rise, was a hedge, so the archers took their traditional places on the flanks, and on the right, since it was devoid of natural defences, they dug a deep trench in front of them. On the left, Oxford commanded the archers, Warwick the men-at-arms. On the right and centre, Salisbury was in charge, and a small reserve was kept at the back, commanded by the prince himself. And then they waited. down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Better to get 30 to 30, get thirty. Better to get 20 Better to get twenty, twenty. 20, get 20, 20 get 15 to get 15, 15 Just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobilecom switch.
1: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: A cloud of grumbling and worry rose from the ranks. The men were hungry and thirsty. They were worried about the size of the splendid-looking army facing them. And at this point, there appeared a figure riding towards the English ranks. It was Talleyrand, the cardinal. Now, at this point, you have to think that the Black Prince wouldn't have been averse to a bit of a deal. Obviously, he has to look confident and the odds were no worse than they'd been at Cressy. But hey he would scarcely have been human if he wasn't a bit worried. And meanwhile, Talleyrand was basically suggesting to him that if he didn't come to an arrangement, he was toast. And so the deliberations dragged on all day, to and fro, envoys moving from the French to the English lines, and all of this played into French hands. The English were starving. If they stayed on this hillside much longer, all the French would need to do was go and have a funeral in the morning but the terms on offer were humiliating. Repayment of all the damage from the campaign and unconditional surrender of the prince and three quarters of his army. John basically also thought the English were toast, so why bother let the guy wriggle off the hook? Just after dawn on the following day, the 19th of September, Talleyrand appeared for the last time and left with the prince's defiance ringing in his ears, empty-handed. He headed off for Poitiers. His entourage, meanwhile, turned right and went to join the French army, which did nothing for English views of the impartiality of the church. John's army was in three divisions. The first was commanded by the Dauphin and by Douglas. The second was commanded by the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans, and the third was commanded by the king himself. John had pitched a large tent in the middle of his position, very grand and rich, "'lined with vermilion silk. "'Inside, Douglas was with the War Council. "'Now look, King,' he said, "'ever since we stuffed the English at Bannockburn, "'they fought on foot. "'Now it's time for you to do the same.' "'Meanwhile, another chap suggested, "'Hey, look, the English are starving. "'Why not just wait? "'Wait for them to starve?' "'Marshal Claremont liked this idea a lot.' Then there's a rather nice exchange of insults, with Marshal Oudraham telling him he's a big girl's blouse, and Clermont replying that when it actually came to action, Oudraham would be so far behind that his horse would be lucky so much as to be able to see Clermont's horse's backside. And so the debate went to and fro, but John agreed with Douglas. At last, the French had learned that throwing a load of horses at a defensive line with archers was a recipe for disaster, but not learned that waiting was often the best approach. The Dauphin and a chap called Bertrand de Guescalin would apply that lesson in the next decade. And so the plan was hatched to have a small corps of cavalry who would attack and break up the archers on the flanks, while in the centre dismounted men-at-arms attacked the English line. Meanwhile, over on the English line, publicly the Black Prince was confidently preparing for battle. Mass had been said. The Black Prince had gone through the tradition of making up new knights just before the battle. He would made his speech to the men. But secretly, he and his council had decided to run away. They could not be sure the French would attack that day. The men were tired, hungry and thirsty. They had to move or die. Behind them, to the left, was a ford over the little stream, the Moisson. And already, Warwick was taking his men towards it, and the English were going to try and manoeuvre in the face of the enemy and slip away. Back to the French camp. Now, the French were positioned over the back of a low ridge, and were therefore pretty much invisible to the English. The French marshals, Clermont and Oudraham, suddenly noticed Warwick's banners wobbling away, His corps was clearly on the move and moving away. In a panic that they'd missed them, the mounted corps charged off. Douglas and Oodraham charged towards Warwick's position on the left and came very near to catching him. Charge straight at the archers, said Douglas. The horses' breastplates will protect them. And this is exactly what happened. But Oxford's archers ran along the river and deeper into the marsh, so now they were protected by the marsh, and from this angle they could shoot at the side of the cavalry as they charged at Warwick's men-at-arms. The horses weren't so well protected there, and once again the chaos of fallen and dying horses erupted, and once again the power of the longbow against cavalry was proven. Oudroham was captured, Douglas was badly wounded, but dragged from the field back to the French camp by his companions. On the other wing, the only way to the archers was through the gaps in the hedge. Many of the French knights were felled by arrows before they arrived. Some got through. Salisbury's men-at-arms moved to cover the gap and were into a bloody melee. The French shouted, Montjoie, Saint-Denis, the English, Guienne and Saint-George. Salisbury, quote, glowed in the warm blood which covered his sword. Suffolk shouted orders and encouragement to his archers. Behind the French cavalry, the 18-year-old Dauphin's line had breasted the ridge and was coming forward on foot, but now the cavalry was beaten. Clermont was dead and the broken cavalry streamed back from the line. Whether or not the English archers managed to retrieve any arrows before the French men-at-arms arrived, we don't know. But what we do know is that whatever arrow storm was launched at the Dauphin and his division, it didn't stop them or cause damage worthy of comment. The longbow was a powerful weapon and had been part of the rise of English military superiority, but it was only part of the story. Against well-prepared armoured men on foot, it had far less impact, although clearly it had some. The rest of the story came next. So, on foot, the French forced themselves through the line of hedges and the fight was on. The prince was in the centre with his standard, shouting encouragement, surrounded by his bodyguard and war council. For two hours, the two lines of men fought toe-to-toe, but the French were getting nowhere, and the French trumpets sounded the retreat. In reasonable order, the French fell back. The English stayed right where they were, in their comfy, well-defended positions, and it raises a point that doesn't get stressed enough. In most of the many encounters we've had, A notable factor has been the ability of the English to enforce discipline. Only one man, Maurice de Berkeley, broke ranks and pursued, and he was captured, which rather proves the point. So it hadn't gone brilliantly for the French up to now, but hey, they still had two of their three divisions and considerably outnumbered the English. But then things started to go belly up. As the Dauphin's line retreated, His handlers were understandably keen to make sure he came to no harm. So instead of hurrying him back to where John stood, they rushed him off towards Poitiers. The commander of the 2nd Division, the Duke of Orléans, saw this and panicked. He had with him the young counts of Anjou and Poitiers, and clearly he either didn't fancy any more of this, or thought the Dauphin's departure was the equivalent of the school break bell. And so he and his entire division decided enough was enough, and it was time to go home, and they streamed from the field after the Dauphin. John at this time would presumably have been muttering something like, The bell doesn't dismiss you, I dismiss you. Many of his companions were hurling insults at the fleeing duke. But as far as John was concerned, all was not lost. He had one entire division left, possibly as many as the remaining English, and they were his best men. They were fresh. The English had got to be knackered by now, and the archers out of arrows. And so he ordered an attack, and you have to say that that was butch of him. The trumpet sounded, his division moved again to the top of the ridge. The English saw another fresh division, and once again fear spread through the ranks. They couldn't know how many more were coming. The French came on and almost all of them again made it to the English positions. At which point the Black Prince really earned his reputation. First of all, he ordered the Captal de Bouche to take a small force of mounted men, maybe no more than 60 men-at-arms and a 100 archers, and take them all the way round the battlefield behind the French ranks. By so doing, for most of their ride they'd be hidden from the ridge and out of sight. And then the foissars reported conversation with John Chandos. Chandos turned to the black prince and shouted, Ride forward, sir. Victory is ours. Today you will hold God in your hand. Let us make for your adversary the king of France. That's where the real business lies. I know he's too brave to run away, so he can be ours. You just said now you would show him how well you could fight. Come on, John, come on, replied the prince. It's forward now. And then he called to his standard-bearer, "'Advance in the name of God and St. George!' Stirring stuff. As the English men-at-arms advanced, as the cap swung his small force behind the French, James Audley, also ran amongst his men, found as many as he could spare from the line, and mounted them up. They then swung out left from the line, sweeping behind the French lines again. And then for the French, suddenly... Everything was chaos. John's men were on open ground, quite unprepared to be attacked by mounted men from behind, and where had these guys come from anyway? The French lines shattered. Many fled straight away. Another group gathered round the French king, yet another was driven down to a marshy patch of land called the Champ d'Alexandre, to be decimated by arrows from Oxford's archers, still there in the marshes. As the prince went forward, he noticed Cardinal Talleyrand's nephew lying dead under a small bush. He called two of his squires and said, Put the body of that knight on a shield and carry it to Poitiers. Take it from me to the cardinal and say that I have sent it with my compliments. Now you need to make of that what you will. Fighting now split into little groups, and as ever as one army broke, the slaughter began. To quote... Men trod in their own guts and spat out their teeth. Many were cloven to the ground or lost their limbs while on their feet. Dying men fell in the blood of their companions and groaned under the weight of corpses until they gave out their last breath. The blood of serfs and princes flowed in one stream into the river. Survivors of the French army fled and were pursued by English cavalry to the walls of Poitiers. The gates of Poitiers stayed firmly shut and the citizens watched the resulting massacre below their walls. All over the field, eager English and Gascon noblemen were making their fortunes, collecting hostages, as many as they could, in a ferment of chaos and lust for gold. There's a rather fun passage historian Jonathan Sumption uses from the account of one Count Damartin. He called on me to surrender, and I gave him my word, so that he should protect me. He took off my bassinet and my gauntlet. Another man came and cut the strap of my sword. Then he handed me over to the keeping of a man of his, and thus he left me. But as soon as he had gone, this man abandoned me and made off. Then a gascon came up and demanded my pledge. I answered I was already a prisoner, but I gave him my word. The poor old count was captured by three people, in fact, before he was finally handed over to the Earl of Salisbury. Meanwhile, King John fought on, with his fourteen-year-old son, Philip, at his side, Philip shouting out warnings, ''Look, Father, there's one!'' as he was hard-pressed. But eventually John surrendered, making sure that the man he surrendered to was a knight before he did so. Then from the edge of the crowd around the king, the Earl of Warwick forced his way through the crowd, bowed before the king, and led him away. At the time, the victory was received with incredulity and disbelief, and I'd like to point out that I've taken the most conservative of estimates numbers-wise. John's army was reported at the time as far bigger, and by the likes of Foissard, at 60,000 men. Now, your modern historian, of course, really doesn't like hyperbole, and there's a lot of downplaying going on these days, but I'm a bloke in a shed. I don't have to worry about that sort of thing. For me, Poitiers is far more impressive a victory than Cressy. At Cressy, Philip attacked before his army was ready. At Cressy, no one really understood the strength of the mass longbow. And at Cressy, Edward was able to watch as wave after wave of cavalry broke against the defence he'd made for that very purpose. I'm not dissing it, mind, but you know what I mean. At Poitiers, the Black Prince makes it happen. John had learned much of the lesson of Cressy. Cavalry was used selectively with a plan in mind, and the rest were dismounted. The longbow does play a vital role, but only a partial role. It's a long engagement, so the archers had run out of arrows for large parts of it. And then the Black Prince launched daring and brave counter-attacks that broke a still superior force. Now there are other reasons. The English were used to fighting together and fighting on foot. So to make a possibly inappropriate analogy, they showed the discipline of Harold's huscarls not the more common discipline of Harold's Third. The Black Prince's control over the actions of his army and the rapport he had with his commanders, Oxford, Salisbury, Audley and the Capetal, was exceptional. And look... To some degree, the measure of a victory is surely the quality of the opposition, and in the French they were fighting the best. Just like Cressy, the French came on again and again and continued to fight with superb courage and discipline. And of course, like every good commander, as Napoleon remarked, he had some luck. Like most battles, the dead of the defeated far outweighed the dead of the victors, since most get killed when formations are broken up. There were two and a half thousand Frenchmen at arms counted, but of course the big thing was the ransom bonanza coming up. Three thousand prisoners, including fourteen counts, twenty-one barons, fourteen hundred belted knights. Oh yes, and the king and his son Philip. Now, none of the English wanted to take their prisoners home as hostage and have the expense of looking after them, so the job was to get the ransom organised now and your prisoner released on parole to go and raise the money. So that night, over the camp, a cloud of muttering arose of French knights who'd spent most of their lives telling everyone how rich and powerful they were, telling woeful tales about how poor the lands were, what terrible losses they'd had in recent years, and so on. All in all, the English probably collected £300,000 in ransoms in addition to King John's. By October, the English army was back in Bordeaux, We'll talk about the consequences of Poitiers over the next episode or so because they were momentous and painful. Years of anarchy, chaos and death in France. Years of horse trading before a treaty was made that would turn to dust in the hands of Edward and his son. But let's leave the last words to John. At least we were not taken like criminals or runaways hiding in corners but like proud soldiers fighting in a just cause captured on the field by the judgment of Mars, when rich men were buying their lives, cowards fleeing untimely away, and the bravest of soldiers heroically laying down their lives. Although the outcome of battles is ever uncertain, yet I have done nothing which I would not as gladly do again in the same situation. I think we should spare a thought for John. He has, of course, a totally rubbish reputation, and understandably so. During his reign, a rich and proud nation was brought to its knees. But politically, it was impossible for him to avoid the battle. He showed he'd learned many of the lessons of Cressy, and he showed all the courage and determination that was the hallmark of the chivalric tradition. The trouble is that Edward and the Black Prince knew full well that chivalry was a game to be played, and it didn't put bread on the table, and the battles were won by hard-edged decisions. France's fortunes would be revived by men like Charles V and Bertrand du Guescalin with that harder-edged view. So that's all, folks. A whopper. Sorry about that. But in the interest of those of you who have fed up the back teeth with all this fighting and so on, I thought it would be good to get right to the end of the Poitiers story. There is one more of the famous battles for us to deal with, the disastrous victory of Nahera, But that's not until 1367, so you can chill for a while and we can get on with the wine, women and song. I have some donators to thank. Many thanks for your Christmas donations to Jonathan, Jim, David and Odette. And thanks everyone for listening. Good luck and have a great time. And if I don't talk to you again before, have a great Christmas time.